0: Welcome to First Hamilton CRC Sermon Podcast. My name is Chris Schoon. I serve as the lead pastor here at First Hamilton. We are delighted that you are listening in. We hope and pray that this message will be an encouragement to you as you seek to know and follow Jesus Christ. We are on the third and final week of taking a look at uh, part of a, a contemporary testimony It's called Our World Belongs to God, and we've been looking over the last couple weeks at a particular section of it which talks about the mission of God's people. And so just to set the stage for us hearing uh, from Scripture and reading that our world belongs to God again, I want to just kind of uh, quickly uh, revisit the last couple weeks, especially recognizing that people have been in and out over the summer months. In some sense, what we're talking about is, is a part of the biblical narrative, uh, and it's important for us to recognize how that narrative flows. There is a God who creates, and Scripture begins with God creating all that is. And in creating everything that is, God gives humanity the task of, of caring for creation and causing it to grow and flourish But very soon into that storyline, we hear that humanity wants nothing to do with the tasks God's put in front of it. In fact, humanity wants to act as if we are God. And so we reject God's role for us, and in fact, we rebel against God. God's response to that could have been to wipe us out, start over, do a whole bunch of things. But what God chose to do was to enter into a long road of redemption. And that long road of redemption leads God to, to call Abraham and, and to create a nation out of Abraham that we call Israel. And God called them to, to particularly know God and to be God's people, to be his witnesses here on earth, that through them the, all of the earth, all of the nations of the earth would be blessed. The people of Israel rebelled against that calling too. And eventually, as the story unfolds, God enters the story himself through the person of Jesus Christ. He enters into that story as a, a descendant of Abraham and, and of the people of Israel. And he fulfills not only what Abraham was supposed to be and the people of Israel were supposed to be, but he fulfills what Adam and humanity were intended to be in the beginning. And through his death and resurrection, we experience the forgiveness of sins, the the reconciliation with God. We are made right with God again and return to that space through the Spirit where we can begin to live and work and move and have our being in creation again. That we can take up the task God put in front of us of cultivating a flourishing earth full of culture, full of life in the environment and in relationship and in society. And and then that narrative unfolds, telling the story of the early church as they worked out this mission, all anticipating that end of the story when Jesus comes back, when everything is made new, when there are no more tears or sorrow or mourning or pain, where, where God restores all of creation and us. Removing the chaos and even the source of chaos from creation. Bringing that to a place where if you read closely at the end of Scripture, you see that all the nations of the earth are working together and they're, they're bringing in their produce. They're bringing in their treasures into the new kingdom, the new heaven and new earth. And it's this flourishing, beautiful image an abundance of culture, an abundance of human life, an abundance of creation itself. And God God makes his dwelling with his people. His home becomes with them. This storyline of what we're talking about, about the mission of God's people, we are really in very, very real way living in between that time of Christ's death, resurrection, and what we call his ascension when he returned to heaven and that time when he's going to come back and make, finish his work of making everything new. And we live in this space here. And it's in this space that we've been talking the last couple of weeks. What is our calling? What is our calling as God's people? How do, we, how do we live in response to Christ's death and resurrection? How do we tell that good news? How do we embody that good news? What does that mean for the way we live? Last week, we talked about it as being a a pursuit of life. How do we we pursue life and protect life and defend life wherever it may occur? How do we treasure and give dignity to everyone so that each and every person begins to recognize that they are God's beloved? And this week, we're going to pick up on that vocational calling of, of love and say, what does it have to do with the work we do? The tangible day-in, day-out, week-in, week-out work. What does this whole storyline have to do with our work? Responding to Christ's death and resurrection. Anticipating Christ's return. How do we work here and now? To help us in that and explore that, I'm going to read one passage. First Thessalonians 4. Verses 9 through 12. And it's important for us just to know a little bit about the background of what was happening in Thessalonica at that time. There was a group of Christians who who were convinced that Christ's return was any day now. And being convinced of that, they would actually, quite literally, walk out of the city in the morning and go sit on the hilltop outside. And they would look up and wait all day for Christ to return. And at the end of the day, they would come back to the city and they would say to the other Christians, we don't have anything to eat. Can you feed us? Can you take care of us? And if you read 1 Thessalonians and then 2 Thessalonians, you hear in both both letters that Paul's writing to that church, don't be idle, work. There is a place for you to work, even while we anticipate Christ's return. Work is not a foreign thing to us. So let me read this passage, and this is one piece of how Paul's correcting their view of work. Now about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. This is the word of the Lord. Alongside that scripture text, the Our World Belongs, Belongs to God statement reads this way. Our work is a calling from God. We work for more than wages and manage for more than profit. So that mutual respect and the just use of goods and skills may shape the workplace. While we earn or profit, we love our neighbors by providing useful products and services In our global economy, we advocate meaningful work and fair wages for all. Out of the Lord's generosity to us, we give freely and gladly of our money and time. The work of our hands. Scripture and the scope of Scripture actually has quite a bit to say about work way more than we can cover in one morning worship service. In fact, we could probably spend our entire fall season together going through the different ways that Scripture speaks about work. The book of Ecclesiastes, from beginning to end, really is about work and our view of work and and the purpose behind our work and struggling for a purpose of meaning in our work. And so we could delve in that together. But today, we're going to take kind of an overview and just touch base on several scripture passages that draw us into this idea of the work of our hands. I think it's fair for us to begin here. Meaningless. Meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil? under the sun. I read a Calvin and Hobbes comic strip this week. I wish I could get the licensing and all that to project it for you, but Calvin is sitting at the bus stop on the first day of school, and he's counted up all the days he has to go to school yet, the years that remain for him to get through high school and then probably college, and he says, and maybe even graduate school, and then work until the day I die. When does a kid get a chance to have fun? And I think many of us feel that same way. Hobbes tries correcting him and challenging him and says, but you still have every afternoon and weekend. And he says, but those are for watching TV. (laughs) How many of us feel that way? (laughs) Work. What's the purpose of it anyway? The, the teacher throughout the letter to or the book of Ecclesiastes, that teacher is reflecting on all the potential ways we can view work. And this is the place he starts because I think it is our most common reaction to work. And not just in our day and age, but throughout the ages. It goes back to the curse where, where we have that sense that work has been changed from a God-given gift in creation to something that is burdensome and toilsome, something that wearies our bodies and our souls. We begin to go, what's the point of it anyways? The teacher here begins to take a, what we say a fatalist attitude, It's of no good because in the end we all die and all the work we've done goes to waste. It's of no value to us. And some days we feel like that, don't we? We get pretty tired of our work, we get worn out by our work. And if it's not the work itself, it's probably the people we work with. We get exhausted by it, we feel the toil and the consequence of sin. Not necessarily my sin or your sin, but the global sense of sin, of a world where work has become disconnected from our relationship with God and our calling to be his image bearers here on earth. But that's not the only thing in Scripture, that danger of of tripping into a sense that work is meaningless and it's something we need to get rid of. It's also this in James. Now listen, you rich people, I should say, sorry for the smaller print. I'll just read it out loud in case you can't read it. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look! The wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who is not opposing you. It's because many of us here are actually quite rich in the world's standards, (laughs) This passage is one we ought to be paying attention to and listening to. But what it's driving at in this text, what it's pushing at is is enjoying the benefits as if you had worked, of gaining riches and prosperity and wealth and a, a lifestyle that affords you every opportunity you want without actually having to earn it. And in so doing, beginning to treat with contempt those people who do work being in a place similar to well quite honestly the lottery think about the message that comes with the lottery it used to be imagine right imagine what your life could be and then they would show a picture of a boat racing across a lake Imagine what your life could be, and then they'd show people sipping wine around a a fire, overlooking a lake. A lot of their images have to do with lakes. Have you noticed that? The newer ones, the newer ads that are out about the lottery, about OLG, say bigger and better. They actually use that phrase in it. Life's bigger and better. If only we could access it. If only there was some secret way of getting it. If only we just won the lottery, everything would be better. And we could quit our jobs. We could quit working. We could live a life of luxury and self-indulgence and travel around the world and have everything we ever wanted at our fingertips and take on an attitude of pitying those poor suckers who still have to work. And Scripture calls it out. It says, no, that view of work and escaping work is not part of who we are to be. That view of indulging in the riches and benefits of working without actually having worked is not who we are called to be. We are called to work no matter what. No matter how many riches or how few riches God has entrusted to us, we are called to be a people who work. You have lived life on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. How those attitudes in our world, that work is a drudgery, something that we need to get rid of and, and tolerate and just can't wait to get to the weekend, or something we need to escape altogether and accumulate riches and wealth so we never have to work again. How big of a contrast is that with what our world bego- belongs to God puts in front of us? Our work is a calling from God, vocation. It speaks of voice, God's voice speaking to us. It is God speaking to us. Our work is God speaking to us, calling us to follow him, to know him. We work for more than wages and manage for more than profit. So that mutual respect and the just use of goods and skills may shape shape the workplace. Suddenly what's happening here is is there's a shift, a a counter-narrative to what's happening in the world around us. It's saying that, that the attitude we have in our work matters. That the purpose for our work is not so much the accumulation of wealth and getting ahead, but that the purpose of work is to develop mutual respect among other people. Suddenly, work is not so much a selfish thing, it becomes a communal activity where we participate in what is sometimes called the common good the good of all people, the benefit of all people. It's that idea of working for the common good that actually shapes our partnership in True City with all these other churches. You know that? Our, our True City tagline that we, we pray for all these other churches in True City each week and, and that True City tagline is churches together for the good of the city. That we actually come together. We're called as God's people to come together to draw our resources together even in our day-to-day working, our day-to-day jobs so that we work for that common good, the good of all people. I wonder... What if we worked for the good of others rather than simply for our own provision, success, and comfort? Let's just sit with that question for a moment. We'll sit in silence. It's okay. But sit for a moment with that question. What if we went to work? What if we get up tomorrow or Tuesday or Wednesday, whenever we go to work this week? What if we got up and went to work With the idea, I'm going for the good of others, not simply for my own provision, success, and comfort. Anybody ever heard this phrase before? A few smiles and nods. What does it mean? What's the Lord's work? Anybody. You can talk in church right now. Anybody. It's what I do, okay? Because I'm a minister? Okay. Anybody else want to add to that? What the Lord wants us to do? Anybody heard of Christian school teachers are doing the Lord's work so they should get paid less than public school teachers? It may not be said explicitly, but it is often said in boardrooms. Kingdom work, yep. Missionaries, we support three missionary families. We'll be taking an offering for them. We often say missionaries are doing the Lord's work overseas, right? What qualifies? what kind? Evangelism, right? Activities we do through the church. I'm wondering what kinds of work or maybe what kinds of jobs qualify as the Lord's work? Yeah, some people are saying everything. Yeah. Let's read this passage a minute. This is from Colossians. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. I want to say two things so we hear this passage in what it's intended to be. It is not a justification for slavery. This text has been used by white supremacists to say that white people are better than people of color, and it was used for centuries that way. That is a misuse of this text. It does not mean that. In fact, if you read Scripture's teaching on slavery and you read what Paul says about slavery in multiple places, he says in another text that if you are a slave, make the effort to get out from under that slavery. It's good to do. And he writes a letter to Philemon uh, 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 about Onesimus, the slave, and encourages Philemon, who is the master, to accept Onesimus as a brother. He undermines the whole philosophy and theology about slavery that was in the broader culture. So to hear this passage correctly, Paul's not saying to them here in Colossians, if you are a slave, do whatever your master says because you need to stay in your place. That is not what's being said here. What Paul's doing is he's taking the lowest status person in the culture The person whose job is so menial, who has no workers' rights, who is being taken advantage of left and right by other people, he's taking that lowest status that nobody wants. And he says, even that person, even the work of their hands, can be done to the glory of God. In our culture, we may sometimes pick on garbage collectors. We may pick on people whose jobs, part-time jobs, I've seen it just this weekend, people were picking on, yeah, then you're stuck with a McDonald's part-time job. And we talk about work and work people can do and jobs that they might have, and, and we demean certain jobs. There was a time in our our Christian reform culture where the trades were seen with with a great deal of pride. If you worked with your hands and produced something with your hands, it was a good thing. But as we have gained more affluence, more money and more resources and more education, we've had this attitude seeping into our culture. Well, if you have to work the trades, Okay but it's better to go to college and university and get a degree that you can really do something meaningful with. This passage and Scripture's teaching on work challenges all of those assumptions. It it reframes us. It says, The lowest, menial, most insignificant job that you can imagine is still part of God's kingdom. It is still good and God-honoring work and you can honor God in the way you do it even if you are being taken advantage of by others. Even if you are in circumstances that seem less than ideal. Circumstances that you wouldn't wish on your enemies. Even in those places, the work you do still is God's work. So the Lord's work that we tend to say ministers do Is no different than the Lord's work that a plumber does. Is no different than the Lord's work that a mom who stays at home with her kids does. Is no different than the work an accountant does. Is no work different than the work any other occupation out there. We are called to use the gifts God's entrusted us in whatever vocation God leads us into, in whatever occupation, whether we are a mechanic or a psychologist, whether we are a garbage collector or someone who is flipping burgers at McDonald's. Those are all good work. Those are all things that God has given us to do in advancing his kingdom in the world by the type of people we are and the way we go about those occupations. Whatever you do, whatever your occupation, even if your occupation is being retired right now, That occupation and that calling can be done so that you work at it with all your heart as if working for the Lord and not for human masters. While we earn or profit, we love our neighbors by providing useful products and services in our global kingdom. We advocate in our global economic... I can't say that word today. In our global economy, we advocate meaningful work and fair wages for all. In some sense, we could preface this part and say, in response to Jesus Christ's death and resurrection, in which he died for every person in order to reconcile all of creation to, to God the Father, we love our neighbors by providing useful products and services we recognize that Christ's salvation is not merely a saving of the souls. It is a saving of the bodies of the whole person. It is a salvation of all of creation. It is a redemption of all things in heaven and on earth. It is a a making new of all of God's world. And we get the privilege in response to Christ's death and resurrection to participate with Christ in the Spirit in that work of making all things new. And not only do we get that privilege, but we get the privilege of coming alongside others and loving them in such a way that they experience the invitation to join God in his work. Our purpose in work is to love our neighbors and to advocate in doing so for the dignity of all people so that our work and the products we produce increase people's dignity and well-being rather than takes advantage of people that our marketing and the way we design things is to draw people into a fuller life, not to escape from life. We begin to work in such a way that our whole purpose for working is reconceived. And to the passage I read at the beginning, three brief points. I love that this passage really is about work and the place that Paul starts is by talking about love and love for our neighbors. And and he echoes it three times in here. Now about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you, but I'm going to anyways, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all of God's family. And so the redirecting of work is in this context of loving our neighbors in some sense, if we read the fuller text, because of Christ loving us. And he goes on, yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. (laughs) Did you catch that? How many of us start off saying, I'm going to college so that I can lead a quiet life? How many of us set out as our career goals that when I grow up, I want to be someone who leads a quiet life? Anybody? (laughs) That is so foreign to us. And yet that's what Scripture is calling us to, to have our ambition, the thing that drives us, the holy ambition that God gives us is to love our neighbors and to do so more and more by learning to lead a quiet life. And what does that quiet life look like? You should mind your own business. And work with your hands. In the second letter, he said, "Some of you have become busy bodies. You're not really busy. you're busy bodies, going around judging everyone else." And he calls them again to this life of work. To put your hands to use, to create something useful with your hands so that you have something to give to other people. It's this idea of of getting our hands dirty, going back to that creational call to tend the earth, to care for it. What I love is if we pay attention to what Scripture says about Jesus' family, it's what he did for the first 30 years of his life. He was a carpenter's son. He got his hands dirty and calloused and nicked up. And carpenters back then, their job wasn't so much to find woodworking, they actually built houses for people. They built the homes that people would live in, they would build the buildings around them that people could dwell in and have a sense of, of this is my space. And the carpenters would work at that stuff. And so Jesus himself models for us what it means to work for the dignity of all people and how do we we work for the good of others? We get our hands dirty. We learn to make things that are productive and beneficial to the people around us. We lead a quiet, unassuming life. And in doing so, in doing so, we'll, learn, we'll win the respect of outsiders. How much does the church need that today? To be a people who are not so much about arguing what's right and wrong, but who are about living what is right by the way we, we produce things with our hands. And not be dependent on anybody. Holy ambition. What does God want for us this coming year? We have people who live quiet lives, lives that are of benefit and of good to the people around us, that participate in God's coming kingdom as, as we restore dignity to all people that we serve. Out of the Lord's generosity to us, we give freely and gladly of our money and time. This hits on one of our core values, and it brings us to the end today. Generous stewardship. You're called to be a people who give generously to others, not just of the money when the offering plate goes around, but in the week, by inviting people over, in the week, by coming alongside others who are struggling, in the week, by showing up at places where we can serve and do something good throughout the week. Not just on Sunday morning. Ephesians 4 28 puts it this way Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. Work is not a drudgery. Handwork, labor, physical labor is not a burden that God has placed upon us. In fact, it is a gift that God has given to us that we might participate with God in his kingdom flourishing here and now, that we might join God in his work of making all things new as we take what we make with our hands and we give it for the good and benefit of others. Close with this as our prayer. Lord God, may your favor, O Lord our God, rest on us. And may you establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, Lord, may you establish the work of our hands. Amen. In response, I invite us to sing, Take My Life and Let It Be. And we'll sing the first four verses. Please stand as we sing.